Okay, let's turn back to Jeremiah chapter 12, and Lord willing, we will finish with chapter 12 tonight, one of the shorter chapters in Jeremiah. But, as I think we'll see this evening, there's some really good things and some encouraging things here in this chapter. Jeremiah chapter 12, we will read from, I think we'll read from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter, but we'll be taking up in verse 12. Jeremiah 12, reading from verse 7. I have forsaken mine house, I have left mine heritage, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Mine heritage is unto me as a lion in the forest. It crieth out against me, therefore have I hated it. Mine heritage is unto me as a speckled bird. The birds round about are against her. Come ye, assemble all the beasts of the field, come to devour. Many pastors have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate, and being desolate, it mourneth unto me. The whole land is made desolate, because no man layeth it to heart. The spoilers are come upon all high places through the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat, but they shall reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but shall not profit. And they shall be ashamed of your revenues because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. And it shall come to pass after that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. But if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you this evening for gathering us in your name to hear your word and for having had great pity upon us. Uh, knowing, and we gather knowing that the Lord pities us even as a father pities his children. And we thank you for that, Lord, knowing that in ourselves we have no right to stand before you at all because we have transgressed your commandments in more ways than we could even begin to number, but that you have been very merciful to us and that you have provided for us a salvation in which you justify even the ungodly. Thank you for that, Lord, and thank you for the promises of the gospel. Thank you for these ancient promises uh, which uh, contain, uh, at least in a kernel form, they contain some of the great things that are laid out for us in the New Testament, some of the great things that you have wrought through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you for it and pray that we might be blessed in the consideration of these things tonight and that your word would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish the good thing that you would send it to do in our minds and hearts. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from the mentality of just checking off that we attended church as a good religious thing to do, but that we would be so attentive to your word that it would indeed lodge in our minds and hearts, and we would have fruitful meditations, and that our knowledge of you and of your grace and goodness and of our own duties before you would be enhanced by what we consider this evening. Please bless and send your Holy Spirit upon us, for without his quickening power our time will indeed be wasted. We pray this all in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Mediator. Amen. <clears throat> when I uh, began studying this week, I uh, rather thought that I probably should have included verses 12 and 13 with last week's sermon because they would fit in uh, better, I think, with what we were looking at last week as part of the 
continuation of the judgment oracle against God's heritage, the one that was dearly beloved of his soul. Uh, we saw last week had turned against the Lord with all the fierceness of a ravenous beast. For his kindness, the people of Israel had repaid to the Lord bitterness, hatred, and enmity. And since they had done so, and since they refused to lay to heart the words proclaimed against them by the law and the prophets, God tells them that he was going to lay their land waste by the hand of a cruel enemy, making the land that had once been described as flowing with milk and honey, it was going to be turned into a desolate wilderness. And speaking prophetically, he continues in verse 12, where we are picking up tonight, to describe what will be coming shortly upon his people who had rejected his word. He tells them that spoilers, or plunderers, or destroyers, as you might call them, these destroyers would swarm over the high places in the wilderness. I'm not quite sure what these high places in the wilderness are, but uh, probably it's a reference to military outposts in the remote regions on the northern edge of Judah's territory where they had uh, lookouts stationed and messengers who could carry word if there was an enemy incursion uh, being made. That's probably what it's referring to. But, of course, this enemy that was coming at them from the north would not stop at the border, and everybody throughout the length and breadth of the land would feel the Chaldean scourge when it entered into the land. And although they may have wished to impute all of the violence and destruction to the enemy that came into their midst, the Lord lets them know that this was not simply the work of a rapacious invader who was acting on his own initiative and completely apart from any divine direction, you will notice in verse 12 that he does not say that the sword of Babylon, the sword of Nebuchadnezzar, the sword of the Chaldeans, but rather he says the sword of the Lord shall devour from the one end of the land even to the other. And so we see once again here something that has already occurred a number of times in Jeremiah, the fact that God himself is claiming responsibility for what is about to happen to the people of Judah. God's sword is one that had often been used for the defense of his people. Probably, uh, if you hear the phrase, the sword of the Lord, the first thing that comes to your mind is when Gideon and his 300 men got up on the hillsides around that vast Midianite host and they broke the pitchers that were holding their lanterns and shined their lanterns and all shouted out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So God's sword had been used many times to defend his people, but now we find it turned against his own heritage the people who had been the recipients of his greatest blessings. So I think the primary observation that we ought to make from this is that when disaster or calamity befalls a land, we need to look beyond the instruments who are physically enacting the, the damage that's being done. We need to look beyond them to the great power that is behind it all. Yes, there are human instruments at work in the evil things going on in the world. We've got some really good examples going on in at least a couple of places and probably a lot more than we're even cognizant of, but certainly the destruction and the brutality and the conflict going on between Israel and Gaza right now, between Russia and Ukraine. There are wicked men involved in these wars on one side or the other and maybe on both sides. I Probably most wars, there's not really any good guys. There's just wicked people fighting wicked people. But regardless, God is actually in control of this, and he's using it for something. I don't know what his purpose is, and we don't even know what the outcome of the conflict is going to be, but God is going to use it to work his purpose, whatever that might be. There are wicked human instruments in our country. 
and talk about those who have opened the floodgates of illegal immigration to overwhelm the infrastructure of our country and flood this country with dangerous drugs and criminals and violence and to rip the social fabric of the country to shreds. We certainly don't ignore the people who are culpable in these great matters, the people who are deliberately doing this to this country for their own nefarious purposes, but we should also realize that this isn't just wicked men doing wicked things, but that God is doing something that he wants to do in this. That God is angry with this nation and many of the other nations in the world. And he is bringing judgment upon wicked and rebellious men because they will not submit to him and to his law. And there are times when God brings a great judgment. There was a phrase earlier on in Jeremiah, and I don't remember which chapter and verse it was, but he called the, the, Jeremiah called the people of his time the generation of my wrath. In other words, this was the generation that was going to experience the final sanction of the law, the destruction of their country, the deportation into captivity, the destruction of the temple. Not that they were necessarily any worse than preceding generations who had done the very same things that they were doing, but God chose to bring it in the lifetime of these people. And when God decides to do that to a nation and to a people, He can make it to where there's no safe place to hide for anybody. No flesh shall have peace is the way he sums it up at the end of verse 12. Even those who have done everything in their power to secure themselves, to secure their, their financial situation, to put themselves in a very defensible situation, or to plot an escape route, God can see to it that even these will not find any immunity when his judgment begins to fall. And the people of Judah would soon learn that to their great sorrow. In verse 13, he goes on to say that they had sown wheat, but the harvest would not be an abundance of grain, but rather thorns. And this is a figure that could have numerous applications, and uh, depending on which commentator you read on verse 13, they, they'll have a different idea as to what exactly uh, this figure is. In fact, at least one that I read didn't even uh, think that it really was a figure. He, he believed that it was just speaking of they were going to go out and sow their land like they always did, but God was going to cause that uh, they would not have a good harvest at all, that their harvest would be blighted and they wouldn't get anything out of it. But ultimately, no matter what the exact meaning is, I think it's very plain that whatever good thing the people of Judah were thinking to gain by their endeavors, whether it was agricultural or whether this is a figure of their military or political endeavors or in any other realm, Whatever they were expecting to reap that would be good and positive was instead going to turn out to be a cruel disappointment. I think the most likely plausibility is that this is referring to their efforts to prepare themselves for the coming invasion that God was going to send against them. And of course that would involve military preparations, trying to build up your army and arm your men to be ready to fight against this enemy that's coming against you. And of course we know that the people of Judah, that they tried uh, diplomatic efforts. They tried to get uh, make alliances with the Assyrians and with the Egyptians, as we saw way back in chapter 2. And they actually got some momentary relief from the Egyptians who broke up the first uh, besiegement of the city of Jerusalem, but the relief did not last very long. We'll get to that eventually as we move along in Jeremiah. The point is that all of their hopes and their expectations would not come to fruition. Instead of the wheat that they were expecting, they would find nothing springing up except thorns. They would find no profit, but they would be ashamed of their revenues, is the word that we have here uh, in the King James. 
Um, if you look up this word, it's one that is often translated as increase when it is referring to a harvest. And I think that that might have been a preferable translation here because the figure being used is drawn from agricultural life. But the point is that because of God's fierce anger, all of their plots, their schemes, their efforts, and their endeavors would come to ruin. No man can plan cleverly enough, no man can put himself in a strong enough or secure enough position to protect himself when God is determined to destroy him. You remember that line from the book of Job? Whoever hardened himself against him and prospered. Men may get away with things for a few years and think that they are prospering, but when God turns his hand against them, they find that there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. The people of Judah certainly were going to learn that to their grief. Well, that's the end of the judgment oracle. And as I already said, that would probably have been better uh, connected with the text from last week. But we're going to turn now, and we're going to be looking at something that's a little bit more encouraging. Because although judgment was absolutely certain, and it was going to be very terrible, God was not going to destroy his covenant people utterly. In those memorable passages of the law, where God warns of the disaster that would fall upon Israel if they, as a nation, rejected his law, he would also include in those very same texts assurances of restoration if they would return to him. Let's just look at one of them in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 45. It's not a very lengthy reading, but it's good to refresh our memories on these things because we will find a number of restoration uh, prophecies in Jeremiah. Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 45. <clears throat> if they shall confess, he's been giving all of these dire prophecies about what's going to happen to them and how they're going to be driven out of the land and the land will finally get its rest when the people are, uh, are driven out. And uh, verse 39, he said that those that are left, the survivors, would pine away in their iniquity in their enemy's land, and the iniquities, in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. You can see the very same kinds of things that Jeremiah is prophesying is exactly what the law warned. But in verses 40 through 45, you have a ray of hope. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that they also have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. He's talking about a genuine heartfelt repentance. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity. Because, even because, they despised my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So you see this promise, this hope of restoration even when the people are driven into captivity, if they will repent, they will experience a restoration from their miserable state of captivity. So in this last section of chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, we see a reminder of this. But what is even more important and more significant, I think, for us is the prophetic indication that we have in this text of the great fact that the Gentiles also will be made partakers of the grace of God. 
So, we're going to see a hint here of how God is going to fulfill His great promise to Abraham that in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Jeremiah speaks of his evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I, that is the Lord, have caused my people Israel to inherit. These evil neighbors would refer to those nations, certainly at least the ones that bordered Israel, the ones with whom they had frequently had conflicts and wars, the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and perhaps extending out as far as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, who uh, may not have had a contiguous border with the land of Israel, but they had certainly had plenty of conflict with them throughout the, the ages. I think perhaps also considering the reference to swearing by Baal that we have in verse 16, that this could also include the remnant of the Canaanites, the ones that the children of Israel had not exterminated, even though they had been commanded to do so. And when they failed to do that, God left them there in the land to test them. And just as the Lord uh, had said, they became pricks in their eyes and pricks in their sides and thorns in their eyes and had helped to lead them into idolatry, into Baal worship and all other sorts of pagan worship. We find in other passages, particularly uh, towards the end of Jeremiah, when you get into that section of judgment oracles against the nations in chapters 46 through 49, as well as other uh, of the prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, Obadiah, Nahum, and Amos, that God often used one nation to execute his judgment upon another nation, and then he would judge the first nation because they had acted wickedly. So God uses the very wickedness, avarice, and malice in the hearts of men to accomplish his purposes, and then he punishes them because they didn't do it to try to serve the end of his glory, but they did it for their own evil reasons. The point being that We've had all these prophecies about this northern army, which we know is the Babylonians. They're going to come in. They're going to destroy the kingdom of Judah and, and make the land desolate and slaughter the people and drag the survivors off into captivity. And all of that came to pass according to the will of God. But Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians weren't doing that because they loved God and were trying to help him work out his purposes. Now, this ought to make perfect sense to us after Sunday because this is exactly the same thing we were talking about in the case of Judas. Judas was not trying to help God fulfill the prophecies of the Psalms and the prophets when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. He was trying to satisfy his own covetous, greedy, thieving nature. And that's what these nations are doing. And so a nation might do something that God had prophesied and which he is using to exact judgment upon another wicked people, and yet God can turn around and judge them as well because they weren't doing it except out of their own sinfulness and wickedness. And so, all of these nations, these neighbors of Israel, and if you read carefully in the histories and in the prophets, you will find that several of these peoples actually joined with Nebuchadnezzar as allies and auxiliaries in his campaign against Judah, touching Israel and the land of Canaan, which Zechariah speaks of them as the apple of God's eye. These people are going to be plucked up out of their lands. In other words, they had helped to bring God's judgment against Judah, but then God was going to bring judgment upon them for their cruelty to Israel. They had been God's instruments to bring divine judgment upon Judah, but then God was going to bring judgment upon them by Nebuchadnezzar and then by others of their enemies because of what they had done to his people Israel. But the house of Judah was going to be plucked out from among them. As you see there in verse 14, I will pluck them out of their land, but he's also going to pluck out the house of Judah from among them. 
So the house of Judah is going to be among these other nations, having been deported and carried off into captivity. But then these nations are going to be ravaged. They're going to be deported, many of them. But God is going to pluck the nation of Judah back up. And of course, we know eventually he's going to plant them back in their own land. That's a theme that uh, the prophet will develop at considerable length later on in this book of Jeremiah. He's the one that gives that important prophecy of the 70 years uh, that the land is going to enjoy her Sabbaths and then they're going to return. And Daniel read about that as he was in the palace uh, serving the kings of Persia and he made that great prayer that you find, uh, I think, in Daniel chapter 9, if I recall correctly. And yet these same people who were going to be scattered from their own lands in retribution for what they, had been, what they had done against Judah would be returned to their own lands. It's a good place to uh, remind you of a little bit of history here that uh, when you read in the Old Testament about Cyrus, the king of Persia, restoring the people of Judah to their land and how he uh, even gave them money to rebuild the temple and to reinstitute the priestly offices and to do the sacrifices and so forth, that wasn't something that was unique to the people of Judah. That was actually a, uh, an empire-wide policy that Cyrus enacted. I think uh, the previous empires had considered that the best way to protect yourself from insurrection was to deport and scatter the conquered peoples so that they would not be able to come together and foment revolution uh, with, and try to over retake their own lands. But Cyrus had a different approach, and he thought that if you ruled these people with kid gloves, you sent them back to their own lands and you treated them leniently, then they would be more or less happy in being subject to the empire of Persia. And so many of these nations were sent back to their own lands as well as the people of Judah through the, I would have to say, a very wise policy of Cyrus, uh, who was, one, of course, one of the great conquerors of the ancient world. It is interesting that in the Judgment Oracle section that we have towards the end of Jeremiah, chapters 46 through 49, that in the case of some of the nations that are addressed there, and there are at least three, Moab in chapter 48, verse 47, Ammon, chapter 49, verse 6, and Elam in chapter 49, verse 39. At the end of those three oracles at least, and we have something similar also with the Egyptians, although you don't have the exact same terminology, but at the end of these oracles, God says, in the latter days I will bring again their captivity. That's a remarkable statement, especially since he places it in the latter days, which to my mind indicates that this is something in the, what shall we say, the time of Christ, the post-Christ time. We know there was some fulfillment of this in, uh, uh, under Cyrus, and yet the latter days seems to be pointing to the age in which we live, the age since Christ has come. You also have remarkable texts such as Isaiah 19, where God prophesies of two of Israel's traditional enemies, Egypt and Assyria. And towards the end of that chapter, he begins to talk about how Egypt and Assyria are going to be united with Israel as true worshipers of God. And that chapter winds up with uh, the prophet saying, The Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. And considering the way that... Uh, Egypt and Assyria had behaved towards God's people in days gone by. That is a very extraordinary prophecy. Amen. So my inclination is to think that these prophecies, while, that while they did have a certain literal fulfillment, particularly when Cyrus restored many of these peoples to their own home, uh, home territories, that they are more intent upon teaching us that in the latter days the gospel of God's grace would go into their regions 
and saved them from the captivity of sin, Satan, and idolatry under which they had been for countless generations. I think that if we read the prophets carefully, what we will find is that most of the New Testament and Messianic prophecies will be found in sections that have to do with restoration from captivity, which should tip us off that this is not just about some historical thing to be fulfilled, although it may have a historical fulfillment, but it is pointing us more so to the great spiritual deliverance that will be wrought through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will add one more thing that I find very interesting, and whether it's the right connection to make or not, I'm not, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's at least worth considering that at least one of those mentioned nations, the nation of Elam, of which it was said that God would bring again their captivity in the latter days, chapter 49, verse 39, people of Elam are distinctly mentioned as being present at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 9. And probably there were people from these other places that were prophesied against there at the day of Pentecost because they had people from everywhere. And we don't even know if the list of, of people and, and languages that are named in Acts chapter 2, that may not even be an exhaustive list. There may have been more beyond what was uh, actually named there in that chapter. And I think that verse 16 would seem to confirm the approach that I'm taking, that this is pointing us much more to a spiritual fulfillment than a literal historical fulfillment, because it promises blessings to those who become true worshipers of God. And we, we know that there wasn't anything like that happened in the time of Cyrus, that these people were still pagans when they were restored to their land. But in verse 16, it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, the Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. Now don't get thrown off by this terminology of uh, these people swearing by my name, the Lord liveth. This is, a, this is a phrase that is really just meant to summarize the entire worship of God. He's not going to name every single thing involved in God's worship, and so he just picks one thing out of the many, and he picks swearing by my name here. So it's a placing of a part for the, for the whole. I think the foundation for this is probably found in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, where Israel's religion is briefly summed up as fearing the Lord, serving the Lord, and swearing by his name. To swear by the Lord's name means that when there is an occasion for an oath, and I think as New Testament believers we should realize that those occasions should be very few and far between for us, considering the teachings of Christ and of James on that subject, but we're not going to get into that teaching tonight. But when there is an occasion for an oath, such as when you are testifying in a court of law, one should entirely avoid the use of the names of idols, and if you're going to swear by the name of a god, you swear only by the name of Jehovah, the true and the living God. This is something that God's people formerly did uh, quite often. In certain parts of the Old Testament historical record, you will find David or some other man using as an oath the phrase, as the Lord liveth. David liked to use that phrase quite a bit as he was uh, going through his various adventures, running from Saul and then being king and so on. Sometimes there were people who used it as a, in a bad way. And Gehazi, after, uh, after Elisha had healed the, uh, the Syrian nobleman, Naaman, and uh, he'd sent him away and refused to take any money from him, and Gehazi said, well, as the Lord liveth, I'm going to go after him and take something from him, which actually, using God's name in that way, was very blasphemous on his part. But the point is that to swear by a god was to show allegiance to that deity. 
So for these pagan nations to begin swearing by the name of the God of Israel would mean that they had thrown their idols away and had become true worshipers of Jehovah. No longer were they seducing the people of Israel into joining along with them and worshiping Baal and swearing by his name, but instead they are uniting with the people of Judah who have been restored from their captivity. They are uniting with them and rendering true worship to the one living God. And by doing so, the Lord says, they shall be built in the midst of my people. They became participators in the covenants of promise and the blessings which only the true God can give. So we have to see here that God is going to invite and welcome repentant Gentiles to become true worshipers along with the people of the Jews. That His grace is not confined to this one family only, but it is abroad. It is a worldwide grace. It is going to be for all of these people who have been living in captivity, a captivity far worse than being under a merciless conquering empire, but the empire of Satan, the god of this world, who has held people in captivity and subjugation for ages and for generations. People are going to be delivered and brought into the family of God. And it's impossible, for me at least, to consider a text like this without thinking of the New Testament fulfillment. As we see in 1 Timothy 3 and I think verse 16, part of the mystery of godliness is that Christ was preached unto the Gentiles. And that's how they were delivered from darkness and from the power of Satan and brought into the light of God. Paul elaborates upon this in several places, but suffice it for us this evening to say that what Jeremiah hints at here only very dimly, Paul makes clear for us in Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22. We were preaching on the Trinity here two or three weeks ago. I uh, quoted Warfield saying that the, uh, the Old Testament is a room that is darkly lit but, uh, but richly furnished. And the New Testament is the light that has shined into this richly furnished room. Well, here you have a very dim light being cast upon what God is going to do, but we can go and read what Paul has to say, and then we begin un to understand more clearly you only had what Jeremiah had to say, you might be scratching your head and wondering, well, how is all this going to come to pass? What is this going to look like? Well, Paul explains it for us. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember, and we need to remember that this is written to a primarily Gentile church. There were probably a few Jews in it, but there in Ephesus, most of these converts are Gentiles and had to have been, judging by the way he addresses them. Wherefore, remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is a precise description of the nations that Jeremiah is talking about here who had not known the Lord and had, in fact had been involved in bringing uh, invasion and judgment upon the people of Judah. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. If there wasn't anything else in the Bible, this would be enough to keep me from being a dispensationalist, trying to keep up this wall of separation between the church and Israel. God has brought Jewish and Gentile believers into one body and made one new man out of them both having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, 
and that he might reconcile both, that is, both the Jew and the Gentile. He reconciles both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. That age-old hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles in which they hated each other and warred against each other, that is to be a thing of the past among believers now. We're not, going, uh, not supposed to let our tribal and national and ethnic enmities uh, build up a wall of hostility between us and our fellow believers. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. These heathen Gentiles have been brought into God's household along with the Jewish believers. And we're all built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. For we who are Gentiles, it should be a cause of endless rejoicing that God did not confine His blessings within the family of Abraham, but that He calls all of the nations of the earth to receive His blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we will see yet one more parallel with Pauline theology in the last verse of this chapter, in verse 17, we are told that if they, that is, these nations that have historically been enemies of Israel, if they will not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, saith the Lord. <clears throat> these words can be spoken to groups of people, to tribes and nations, but since nations are composed of individuals, we should each take personal warning as well. We don't want to try to hide ourselves in the mass and pretend that this doesn't have anything to do with me as an individual. And also, I would advise us not to get hung up on the word obey, as some people tend to do. Uh, there are those who think that they have such an exalted view of God's grace that they almost break out into hives if you even say the word obey, because they think that you're beginning to preach, uh, preach uh, a gospel of works and saving yourself by your works. But we have to realize that there are places in the New Testament that talks about the obedience of faith. It's not a meritorious obedience. It's not that I did this, so now God has to save me because I did this act of faith or whatever. But the, the Bible does talk about obedience of faith, and it proclaims destruction upon those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the truth is that the very act of faith is itself an act of obedience. We do have some brethren who would question that, those who uh, seem to get the idea in their heads that if you don't have the spiritual capability to do something, then it cannot be a command. But uh, we've proven before that that's just as true of the law as it is of faith in Christ. We don't have the capability of obeying the law either, but that doesn't relieve us of the responsibility of obeying the law. Just because we don't have the capability in ourselves to believe in Christ to the saving of our souls doesn't mean that we're not responsible to do so. Faith is an act of obedience, and yet while it is an act of obedience, it is actually a complete disclaiming of all personal merit where God is concerned. Because looking to Christ by faith is saying that I have no goodness, I have no merit, and I trust in Christ and Christ alone to be my goodness and my merit before God. So the very act of faith is an act of obedience because all men are required to believe whatever God tells them. If you don't believe what God tells you, you've made him a liar. As John tells us in 1 John I think, chapter 5, verse 13. So we are to believe those facts that God tells us about our sinful condition and about the hope 
that is laid up for those who will repent and turn to Christ. And to do that is an act of obedience. Again, it's not meritorious. It's not an earning of anything with God. The only thing that is earned from God, uh, with God for us is earned by Christ and not by ourselves. But what I do want us to do is to remember Paul's warning to the Gentiles who were tempted to make their very faith a matter of boastfulness when they contrasted it with the unbelief of the Jews. In Romans 11, and I'm just going to quote, I'm not going to turn there, you can look if you want in chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, the Apostle Paul warns these Gentiles who were being tempted to be proud because they had become Christians while the vast majority of the Jews were remaining in unbelief. Paul warns them, be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. That's Romans 11, 20 through 22. And don't you see in that a very obvious echo of what Jeremiah is saying here? God is telling these people that if you learn to swear by my name, you will be built up in the midst of my people, but if you don't obey, I will pluck you up and destroy you. That's almost exactly the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans 11. It almost makes me wonder if Paul didn't have a text like this in mind when he was penning some of these passages that we've looked at tonight. These Gentile nations would be invited to be numbered with the true worshipers of God, but that meant that they had to forsake their idols and come to God on God's terms. They couldn't keep Baal and worship Jehovah at the same time. They had to forsake their idols and worship the one true and living God alone. If they refused to do so, or if they started to comply but then turned against the Lord, then they would be destroyed. And that brings us to our application for this evening. It shouldn't take us very long. It reminds us that although the basic meaning of the gospel is that it is good news, that's actually the meaning of the word is good news, still the gospel does carry with it a warning and a threat. In that sense, the gospel is like the law. You see, what the law does is it promises a blessing to everybody who obeys it perfectly, but threatens cursing and destruction upon all who rebel and disobey, which covers 100% of us without any exceptions except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the difference between the law and the gospel is found in that the gospel promises blessings not to those who are able to obey and live up to a certain moral standard, but it promises blessings to those who cannot obey, but have found by faith a substitute sin-bearer and a substitute righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 4 5 that God justifies the ungodly. Not the man who works, but the man who believes on him that justifies the ungodly. But while the gospel does hold out this tremendous blessing to the sinner, it does also contain the very gravest threats and warnings against those who reject the hope that is provided for them in Christ. You can look at the very worst sanctioned passages in the law, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, or any of the others. There are some terrible things included in there, but to my mind, they're not half as horrifying as the, uh, as the warnings to those who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are threats and warnings. That's what Hebrews 6 and 10, those famous apostasy passages, are all about. For instance, in Hebrews 10, when we are told that if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that's not just speaking of, of sin in general. That's not saying that if you 
uh, get aggravated with your wife and you decide, well, I'm going to play a nasty practical joke on her or something like that, which would obviously be something sinful to do. And it would be a willful sin. That's not the kind of willful sin that Hebrews 10 is talking about. It's talking about the particular sin of rejecting Christ and his sacrifice as the one and only means of dealing with sin. The point being that if you turn away from this one and only gospel, there is no other hope for you. There's not an alternative way of being saved. It's not that, well, maybe Buddhism will get you to heaven, but it's not quite as easy of a road. No, there is no other road. There's no other hope outside of Christ and his one sacrifice for sin forever. And so, the nation or the individual that rejects God and his ordinances of worship must perish. I am completely convinced that the reason the European and American states are in a very evident decline socially, morally, and financially can be directly attributed to their rejection of God and his gospel in favor of the tenets of Darwinism. I don't know if any of us realizes fully just what a complete sea change it was in the whole course of the world when people began to accept Darwinian theory as, as being gospel truth and began to turn their backs on the word of God in favor of this actually very poor theory, this, this theory that has no evidence whatever to back it up, and uh, began to form their whole concepts of government and of life upon this uh, pseudo-scientific idea. <clears throat> It is beyond our power to restore the nation. We can't do anything except to continue to call upon men to repent, just like the apostles did when they went out into a pagan world. It was completely enveloped by paganism. They weren't trying to create a Christian nation. They were just calling upon men to repent and believe in Christ to the saving of their souls. That's what we can do. We can pray that God will blaze this message forth with great success far and wide. At the same time, we should and we must take good heed to ourselves. The Father is seeking worshipers in all places to worship Him in spirit and in truth. To use Jeremiah's terminology, people who will swear by His name and by His only. We're not going to try to mix Darwinism together with Christianity and try to force these two completely incompatible faiths to work together hand in glove because they cannot work together. We throw away the idols of the world and trust to the Word of God. This is what we must become. This is what we must be. Because if we do not, we will be plucked out from among the living and be cast down into destruction. Please stand with me as we close in a word of prayer and benediction. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for bringing us together tonight to hear your word. Thank you for these wonderful prophecies. Thank you for having mercy upon the Gentiles. We are very aware, O oh, Father, that uh, for all of us here tonight, I think that our forefathers were in uh, complete darkness, spiritually speaking, for many generations, but that at some point you sent people to them carrying the message of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ, and you have granted to us to hear and to believe that wonderful gospel. Please bring each one who is in this room tonight to hear and to believe and to trust in Christ to the saving of their souls. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost abide with us as we depart and return to our places and occupations. In Jesus' name. Amen. Dismissed.